0: And over, um, over the summer, we're looking at, as uh, Ash said, we're looking at the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the, of the Jewish people. But as Ash said, not just of the Jewish people, but of um, us who are of the, the faith of Abraham. And today, we're going to look at Sarah. Okay, before we do, I want to ask you a question. Okay, what makes you laugh? Okay, what makes you laugh? Because if you're paying attention Uh, to the uh, readings this morning that's a pretty obvious question to ask isn't it because who is laughing or not laughing supposedly and what they're laughing about or not laughing about that just keeps on coming up so what does it for you what makes you laugh what what brings a smile to your face I mean it could be almost anything couldn't it It could be the joke a friend tells you. It could be some silly thing that one of your kids does. It could be your favorite comedian on stage. It could be some video on YouTube. There's gonna be something that makes you laugh. Now, I did know someone once who it appeared never seemed to laugh. Instead, she seemed to exist in a world of perpetual misery. And all of our attempts to help her failed, until the penny finally dropped. Man, she's happy being unhappy. That's her sweet spot. You the 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 drama and the attention and the accumulated anxiety of lurching from one crisis to another, that seems to be what makes her happy. I can almost guarantee you that that is not you. Because all of us want to be happy, don't we? Or at least the, the vast majority of us want to be happy and to feel happy. We would la- rather smile than scowl. We would rather laugh than cry. Okay, but what Sarah teaches us, if you look, is that sometimes we can laugh and smile not because we're happy, but because we are not happy, because we're unhappy. And the very thing that is making us smile may in fact be the very thing that is robbing you of joy. You see, Sarah by now is a, she's an old woman. She's 90. And when you meet someone of that age, maybe you can think of someone, probably probably not many, sadly, But if you can think of someone who who is that age, who is genuinely happy and joyful and hopeful and you hear them laugh and you see the crease lines on their face, that is a beautiful thing, isn't it? A rare thing, but a beautiful thing. Sadly, that was not Sarah, at least not to start with. Okay, so as we look at her this morning, I want you to think about the trajectory of your life. What will your heart, what will your character look like when you are her age? And what does what you laugh at now tell you about how things will be then? Okay, and as we do, I want you to consider three things. How does joy die? How can joy be rekindled? And how might that be true for you? Okay, so the first one, how joy dies. How does joy die in someone's life? Okay, look at verse one. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now, of course, one of the big questions over this passage is, do Abraham and Sarah know that this is God? Well, if you look at it, It's hot, hotter even than today. Okay, and Abraham is taking his siesta outside in the shade and he looks up and verse two tells us, behold, three men were standing in front of him and despite the heat, Abraham runs to meet them. He bows down before them and he treats them with deference. He calls one of them, verse 3, Lord, and he calls himself your servant. He washes, or at least he offers to wash their dirty feet, and he provides them with what he humbly describes in verse 5 as a morsel of bread. But in reality, it is a feast, not a morsel. And having served them the food and the drink, we're told in verse eight, "He stood by them under the tree while they ate." What does he look like? He looks like a waiter, doesn't he? He's like a servant. He's like a butler just standing there waiting to tend on them. OK, I want you to imagine that was you. OK, and you have been working all day, and it is hot and you have finally got into the shade, and you're just closing your eyes for a sleep, when three total strangers pitch up, would you start rushing around treating them like royalty, or like a right royal pain in the neck? I can almost guarantee it would be the latter. And so the way Abraham treats them says to us, He must have known that this was God. Why else would he behave like that? We wouldn't. Except as multiple commentators point out, Abraham is simply showing Bedouin hospitality. He's doing what anyone in his culture would do. He sees men in need of shade and refreshment and he gives it. Again, look at Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Who's the writer referring to? I mean, think through the Bible. Who's he referring to? As Again, as multiple commentators point out, probably Abraham. Because in the first century Jewish world, Abraham and this event in Abraham's life was held up as the example of hospitality. Abraham has no idea who these guys are, but he treats them as if they are sent from heaven. And they are. Okay, but if Abraham didn't know who they were, and I would argue he doesn't, they clearly know who he and Sarah are. Verse 9. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? I want you to notice Abraham's response. She is in the tent. Except apparently the Hebrew is much shorter and much terser than that. Where's Sarah, your wife? In the tent. And notice how he treats her. When the guests arrive, verse 6, quick, three sears, of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. Okay, so he treats his guests like royalty, but how's he treating his wife? Like a servant. So yes, Abraham is a wonderful example of hospitality, and he is. But he's also an example of a man, a husband, who behaves one way in public, and another way in private, who treats strangers better than his wife. Why? Well, yesterday, we were at uh, the wedding of uh, Lucas's sister. Lucas, my son-in-law. And it was a great day, a hot day, but a great day. A great day for not wearing a tie, believe me. And um, it was a great day because there's—I mean, there's nothing like a wedding is there for putting a smile on people's faces. And if you think about it, 70 or more years before, Abraham and Sarah would have had just such a day of putting a smile on people's faces. On their wedding day, a day of feasting and gift giving, a day of joy and hope and the expectation of all that lay before them as they came together in marriage and of the family that was gonna come from them. And yet here they are, 70 years or more later, and if you look, the hurts and the scars in their marriage are all too obvious and their children are non-existent. They have servants, they have possessions, but they have no family in a culture where family was everything. Imagine the toll that that would have taken on their relationship. Theodore Roosevelt described comparing yourself to others as the thief of all joy. Do you think Sarah's been comparing herself to others? It would have been hard, if not impossible, for Sarah not to compare herself to other women. Maybe she's got sisters or her neighbors, or her friends, or as we saw last week, she now has a servant girl, Hagar, none of whom have had any problems having kids. And if she was making those comparisons, or if Abraham was and pointing them out to her, it is no wonder that joy was in short supply. Comparisons kill joy. Because by now, Abraham is 100, Sarah is 90, and they have decades of hurt and disappointment and the emotional scars of all of that behind them. And that is what explains why Sarah laughs. Verse 10. The Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah is inside listening. But before we, talk, before we are told what her response is, we are told something about her body. Verse eleven. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she's postmenopausal. She stopped ovulating and she stopped menstruating, and she's likely been like that for years. And here is a total stranger saying that she is going to have a son. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Ask yourself, is Sarah laughing because at last she is going to have the pleasure of holding her own baby and enjoying the experience Of motherhood? Is she laughing because finally the weight of cultural shame is going to be lifted off of her? The answer is no. Almost certainly she is laughing out of cynicism. She has experienced disappointments too many to number for her to possibly believe this. A son? Oh sure. Sure, we're going to have a son. You see, when she says, after I am worn out, you could translate that as, after I have become shriveled up. And when she describes Abraham as being old, the implication is he's not just old, he's impotent. Because when she says, shall I have pleasure, it's the word for sexual pleasure. So what is her response? Her response is, a son? Oh sure, sure we're gonna have a son when we're not even having sex. When it has been years since I've even felt his touch, let alone enjoyed it, sure we're gonna have a son. And so Sarah's not laughing out of joy, she's laughing because of the absence of joy. Because when hope dies, Joy dies. And if Proverbs 13 verse 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, one way that hope deferred, hope dying, makes the heart sick is it makes us cynical or bitter. We stop believing that things could be different. And your heart can become so scarred by hurt that your heart becomes hard I want to ask you, do you recognise that in yourself just a bit? Or maybe in somebody you know and love? I mean, just think about yourself. Do you ever find a little wry smile playing across your face? Or do you ever find yourself laughing to yourself with just a hint of bitterness? If you're a Christian, do you find yourself reading some promise or some command in the Bible? Or maybe you hear... Another Christian says something encouraging, trying to point you to God. And like Sarah, you don't say anything out loud, but inside your response is just like hers. Sure, if only. But of course, the death of hope is not the only reason that we might respond like that. These sort of ironic smiles, or smiling at stuff or laughing at stuff we shouldn't do. Maybe you find yourself smiling at some misfortune that befalls somebody that you don't particularly like. Maybe you feel good about yourself and you allow yourself a little smile because in comparison to others, you think you're a better person than they are or you're just doing better in life than they are. Again, like Sarah, you wouldn't say that out loud because that would be kind of crass and what would people say about you if you did, but you still think it. Or do you find yourself smiling when you get your own way? Now, you're not self-righteous like these other people, like religious people, but it sure feels right when you come out on top and you just allow yourself a little smile. And if you recognise any of those, ask yourself, what will your heart, what will your character look like after a lifetime of smiling at what you smile at now? You see, if comparing yourself to others or the smile of cynicism because of the accumulated disappointments of life, if those two things can rob you of joy and kill joy, so too, ultimately, will with the, with the smile of self-righteousness or the smile of self-centeredness. Because they will leave you either judgmental of others, which leaves you with a deep-down anger and dislike of others, criticism of others, or they will kill your relationship with others, none of which are fertile soils for hope and joy to flourish in. Okay, but there are still more reasons, I think, from here why joy can grow dim, why joy can die. Like the way you've been treated by others, by the scars you've accumulated because of the hurt of others. You see, it's not just that Abraham speaks to Sarah like a servant and not a wife. It's, has he spoken to her at all about the promises of God? has he has he told her has he has he reminded her that they will have a child God Sarah God has given his word let's cling to that in his commentary on this passage Derek Kidner points out that there is no evidence that Abraham ever told her and even if he did he hasn't convinced her You know, one of the, I think, one of the striking things about the description of the excellent woman in the excellent wife in Proverbs 31 is something that I routinely point out to the young couples who come to Sue and I for marriage prep. And that is, if you look at Proverbs 31, the husband talks to his wife. It's revolutionary, ladies, isn't it? Amazing. But the husband actually talks to his wife. Proverbs 31, 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Has Abraham done that? Has he done that? Has Abraham fought for Sarah's joy in the dark days? Has he spoken the word of God to her to help keep her hope alive? Has he told her, Sarah, regardless of what the circumstances say, you are chosen, you are blessed by God and God will keep his promises. Has he told her, that she means more to him than any number of children. Maybe he has. If he has, the text is silent on it. You see, sometimes our joy can falter, our joy can be snuffed out because we don't have people around us who are encouraging us. I don't know, maybe that all sounds very depressing to you, except by chapter 21, Sarah is a transformed woman. And now she really is laughing from joy. Question is, what turns that around? What brings about the transformation in her heart? Second point then, how joy can be rekindled. Okay, and the visitor doesn't just know sarah's name he knows her thoughts verses 13 to 14 the lord said to abraham why did sarah laugh and say shall i indeed bear a child now that i am old is anything too hard for the lord okay so for sarah the way back to joy began it begins with knowing that god knows the state of her heart And interestingly, if you look at it, he knows it better than she knows it herself. And when you are hurting or you are just confused and you don't know what you're feeling at the moment, you don't know what you're thinking, to know that God knows and he knows your heart better than you know it yourself, when that thought sinks in, that is an incredible comfort. But then, if you look down at the footnote, you will see that in the Bible, you will see that that word hard can be translated wonderful. Abraham, Sarah, Westlake, is anything too wonderful for me to do? If you've ever been to our place, you'll know that the view from our garden, I think, is I think it's a pretty good view okay first you look out we're on a slight hill you look out and there are the rooftops foreground and then sort of the mid ground there are the fields and the trees and then the far ground you see the jura mountains i think it's a a beautiful view and once we had some friends arrive from the us and they live in a part of the us where apparently it is just flat for miles you just don't see anything just the right flat okay and this friend of ours the wife Jill when they arrived got took them out of the car took them around the back took them into the garden and Jill just stood there and she went oh wow oh wow oh wow oh pool oh wow no exaggeration okay what was going on what's going on her heart is being filled with wonder. And the Lord is saying to Abraham and Sarah, guys, I am that kind of God. I am the God who can fill your heart with wonder. Nothing is too wonderful for me to do. And as you trust me, And as you understand who I am, and as you understand what I can do, your heart will fill with wonder. Have you ever experienced that? Have you experienced it in the past, but you've forgotten what that is like? When you begin to grasp that nothing is too hard or too wonderful for God, because when you do, joy begins to flicker and burn bright in your heart but what about timing verse 14 at the appointed time i will return to you about this time next year and sarah will have a son what do you like in traffic jams okay what are you like when you are stuck on the motorway I have to say, I am not at my best. Okay, I don't know what you're like. Okay, for me, when I'm in a traffic jam, it feels like someone somewhere is conspiring against me. And I sit there and I'm checking the lanes. I fix one car or a lorry or something so I know how the other lanes are moving. OK, do you do this? And you work out which one is moving faster, and you move into that lane. But when you move into that lane, what you begin to notice is if this lane, the lane I was in, if that lane starts moving faster, man, I am so frustrated. I resent it. OK, do the words joy and traffic jam go together? They don't, do they? Why? Why? because frustration and impatience also kill joy and here is God saying there is an appointed time there is an appointed time for this wonderful thing that I am going to do and when you and I when Abraham Sarah when we begin to trust in his perfect timing and we say no to impatience joy has a chance to start flourishing again okay but did you notice how sarah responds to the lord calling her out verse 15 but sarah denied it saying i did not laugh for she was afraid and the lord's response to her he said no but you did laugh sometimes if hope and joy are to be rekindled We need to allow the Lord to show us what we've become and what we are becoming. Maybe we've become jaundiced or cynical or just tired. And yet if you look, while the Lord corrects her, he doesn't crush her. He calls her out, but he doesn't shame her. Instead, it's as if he holds up a mirror to her and says, no, Sarah, you did laugh. Let's change that. Let's change what it is you're laughing at. And change it he does. Because come chapter 21, we are told, verses 1 to 2, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And what do they call the boy? Isaac. What does Isaac mean? He laughs. He laughs. And now in the face of the wonder of God's work in their lives, Sarah says, verse six, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, does she mean that some people will mock her? Fancy a woman of her age having a baby. That's disgusting. Well, maybe, maybe some people are going to laugh. Sarah doesn't mind now, does she? Sarah is saying, let them laugh. Because God has made me laugh. God has rekindled my joy and he has proved himself faithful. He has done the wonderful thing. And the barren woman has given birth. And weakness has been turned to strength. And cynicism has been turned to joy. Is anything too wonderful for me, the Lord says. But for all of that to happen... Sarah also has to do something, doesn't she? What does she have to do? She has to go back to bed with Abraham. She has to re-engage. If she had withdrawn to separate beds and separate rooms, she has to be willing to start over. She has to be willing to make herself vulnerable again. She has to open herself to God doing the wonderful thing. Let me ask you, what might that look like for you? I mean, maybe for you at the moment, it doesn't mean anything. Maybe your heart is full of joy. Maybe your heart is full of wonder. What if it's not? Well, maybe, it may be as simple as you reengaging with prayer and Bible reading and being open to hearing about the character and the promises of God and responding to that with faith and not with cynicism It might be re-engaging with community, like, you know, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but it might be saying, Okay, I'm going to be in church every Sunday. I'm going to join a home group or having a group of friends around you who will speak God's word to encourage you and fan the flames of joy. It might be refusing to walk away from a situation at work or in your wider family that seems hopeless. And like Sarah, instead of walking out the door, choosing to walk back in the door. Okay, whatever it is for you, that's what Sarah does. And that took faith. It took trust. And interestingly, not in the first stage, at least, it's not talking about trust in Abraham. It's trust in God. As Hebrews says, Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So, at some point, just like we saw a few weeks back, at some, you know, when Abraham stood under the stars and he believed God, at some point after this encounter, Sarah said to herself, she also believed, and she said to herself, Okay, God, I believe you can do this. I believe you can do this. So I am going back to my husband. Of course, even before she does that, I think there is a clue in her response that even though she is struggling with cynicism and disbelief, I think there's a clue that all is not lost. Okay, she says that she is dried up and passed it. And then she talks of Abraham. And look what she calls him, verse 12. My Lord... And if Hebrews, if the book of Hebrews holds up Abraham as the example of hospitality, in 1 Peter 3 verse 6, Peter holds up Sarah as the example of respect, of a wife respecting her husband. Because like almost every other wife, she has ample reason to talk down her husband. After all, she knows what he is like in private. But she doesn't, she honors him. And when we have been hurt by others, there is always the temptation to slash and to burn their reputation. If instead we choose to think the best of them and speak the best of them and not let bitterness take root, joy might be just around the corner okay but what if you are thinking close with this what if you are thinking great for sarah but i don't see him coming up with this stuff for me i don't see him doing anything wonderful in my situation and believe me i have prayed for it true what if he already has what if he's already done the wonderful thing last point then how this can be true for you Now if in verse 14, the Lord says, as he does, is anything too hard and too wonderful for the Lord? What is harder or more wonderful than a barren woman giving birth? How about a virgin? And a thousand years later, God chooses Mary, a descendant of Sarah, and Sarah is old but Mary's just a teenager. And Sarah has been married for years. Mary is unmarried. And Sarah was barren, but Mary, she's a virgin. She's never had sex. And as the Lord comes to Abraham and Sarah and tells them they will have a son, so an angel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. And Sarah questions, asking, when I'm old and Abraham's old, is this really gonna happen? And Mary asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the Lord says to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? But his reply to that rhetorical question comes to Mary. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Sarah bears Isaac, whose name means he laughs. And he's the forebear of the Messiah. But Mary bears the Messiah. She bears Jesus, whose name means not he laughs, but he saves The Lord saves, and why does he come? Well, here, the Lord comes to Abraham, and Abraham at least offers to wash their feet, and he offers him a feast. Christ comes, and he doesn't just offer. He comes and washes our feet, and he invites us to a feast. And if Abraham is standing there as a servant under the tree, serving the Lord, Christ the Lord comes to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if the Lord visited Sarah and Abraham in their hopelessness, how much more true is that of Christ coming and visiting us And if here he lifts the burden of shame off of Sarah, so he lifts the burden of sin and shame and guilt off of us. And he does it to rekindle our joy, joy and wonder, in the pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore. Because what is more wonderful than the Son of God dying for us? And then rising from the dead and conquering sin and death that is the ultimate example of new birth out of barrenness and hope out of hopelessness and life out of death and as paul writes he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things now like sarah you may have to wait a lifetime to see that maybe beyond your lifetime one day you will see it and if while we wait we think deeply about the wonder of the gospel that christ would come and die for us and rise again he is now seated and reigning in heaven over us if you think deeply about that and the implications of that i guarantee you your heart will fill with wonder and with worship and with joy and with hope and you will smile and laugh at all the right things let's pray